This is the Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Um, John and I have decided to um, release an additional episode um, focused specifically on a couple large articles related to uh, COVID 19. Um, for anyone who hasn't tuned in before, uh, I'm a general internist at Mount Sinai Hospital and assistant professor at the University of Toronto um, with. Uh, PhD in uh, epidemiology, and I'm joined with my brother John Freilich, uh, also a general internist, also training in epidemiology, um, but he's a newly minted assistant professor at the University of Calgary. John, how are you doing? Hey, Mike, doing well, thanks. Yeah, kind of like Toronto and the rest of the world, uh, you know, Calgary's paying close attention to what's going on with COVID 19. So, we have a few interesting papers to talk about to try to provide clinicians with some information about what is known and really focusing in on some of the clinical characteristics and perhaps some of the predictors for worse outcomes, at least for what's available in literature today. Yeah, and that's actually a great point just to mention up front that obviously things are um, you know rapidly evolving and um, we're recording this episode, uh, what is it, Saturday, March the 14th uh, at uh, 5 o'clock uh, Eastern time and I don't know, a couple hours, I guess, earlier in Calgary, is that right? <laughs> 3 p.m. Alberta time. <laughs> Fair enough, okay. Um, so John, why don't you start us off? What uh, article are you going to be discussing? So the paper that I'm going to describe is called Clinical Characteristics of Coronavirus Disease 2019 in China. And this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, February 28th of this year. It's by Guan et al. Uh, perfect. And what was the uh, research question here? The question here was trying to describe the clinical features of patients affected by coronavirus. All right. Obviously, extremely timely. So uh, why don't you give us a, a bit of a backdrop here on, um, on COVID-19? Absolutely. So I think as a lot of us are, are now realizing, you know, the first cases of a pneumonia of unclear etiology were being described in Wuhan, China in early December 2019. Finally, they were able to identify that this was a viral pneumonia that is highly contagious. And what we're now seeing is a rapidly evolving global pandemic. What can be learned from the experiences of physicians in Wuhan can certainly help um, direct and guide what we do here in North America and really in the rest of the world. And so you'll see a couple of words in the mainstream media. There is SARS-CoV-2, and that refers to the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2. And that's the name of the virus. So that's the virus that was detected. But kind of the, the clinical disease itself is COVID-19. And so what I'll be using uh, from here on out is COVID-19 to refer to the disease. Uh, what was the study designed for this study? So this was an observational study. It was approved by the National Health Commission of China. And now consent was waived due to the urgency of data collection. Data came from hospitalized patients as well as outpatients, and it was collected between December 11th, 2019 and January 29th, 2020. COVID-19 was diagnosed using real-time reverse transcriptase PCR via an NP swab, and it was confirmed at the Chinese CDC or Certified Tertiary Care Hospital. The majority of cases that are going to be described are from the Hubei province, which has a population of, I believe it's about 58.5-59 million people. Uh, the data that they collected included clinical symptoms, laboratory findings, and imaging results at the time of diagnosis. Uh, and really, I guess what I should really say is kind of at the time of diagnosis slash at the time of admission. 
Um, and they classified disease severity as per the American Thoracic Society. And, so, and for those that aren't familiar, um, it's sort of severe or non-severe. And that's classified by having one major or three or more minor criteria. Major criteria would include things like uh, septic shock on pressors, respiratory failure on a ventilator. Minor criteria, there are a number of them, uh, bilateral infiltrates, tachypnea, low PAFIO2, confusion. So uh, that's how they kind of describe severity. Uh, clinical data was abstracted um, to a central data processing center, and it was clinicians with a respiratory background who were then uh, collecting the data and interpreting it. The primary outcome was a composite of admission to the ICU, use of mechanical ventilation, or death. Okay, so if I have this right, this was an observational um, cohort study um, in uh, Wuhan, China, and essentially the goal was to characterize um, the symptoms and severity of COVID-2. Uh, and by COVID-2, I mean COVID-19. Um, and as you articulated, um, the main outcomes were related to admission to ICU, use of mechanical ventilation, or death. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's correct. All right. And what did the patients look like? So as of January 29th, 2020, there were 7,736 patients who were hospitalized with COVID-19. This data collection was 1,099 of those patients, so about 14%. Uh, these patients were admitted to hospitals um, that were designated to treat and manage COVID-19 patients. Now, with regards to sort of the overall population, the overall median age was 47 42% were female, 12% current smokers, and 23% had some other health problem, specifically about 15% with hypertension, 7% with type 2 diabetes. All right. And what were the main results? So the main results, again, this was pertaining to 1,099 hospitalized patients with COVID-19. At clinical presentation, 43% of them had a fever, and they defined fever as a temperature above 37.5. 68% had cough, 34% with sputum production, and 19% with dyspnea. Fatigue was relatively common, 38%. Uh, they have imaging um, details as well. So chest x-rays were actually only done in about 274 patients, but of those, about 60% showed abnormal chest x-ray findings. Mostly this was ground glass changes, local or bilateral patchy shadowing, the majority of people had a CT scan. So 975 patients had a CT scan, of which 86% showed an abnormal finding. Again, uh, ground glass changes, local or bilateral patchy shadowing was what was described in the reports. Uh, from a lab perspective, 83% of patients had lymphopenia, 36% with thrombocytopenia. And with regards to some like inflammatory markers, so CRP was elevated in 60% of patients, D-dimer was positive in 46%, LDH was elevated in 41%. So again, this is sort of the, if you will, all comers admitted to the hospital. Now of those, 173 patients met criteria for severe disease. And amongst those with severe disease, they tended to be older. They had more underlying comorbidities. Imaging findings were kind of in keeping. So sort of bilateral airspace disease, uh, more interstitial changes were also noted. And the lab work showed worse biochemical profile. Now, the patients that ended up in the ICU that were on a mechanical ventilator or that died 
that was a total of 67 patients or 6% of, of the total population. Again, these patients were older, 80% were over the age of 50, but I, I guess, you know, of note, 20% were younger. So they were 49 years of age or younger. They had more comorbidity, and the comorbidities were really driven by things like hypertension, 36%, type 2 diabetes, 27%, COPD was in 10% of patients. And as you would expect in a critically ill patient, their biochemical profiles were you know, significantly abnormal. Um, they do just describe in general what some of the treatments were that were given to patients. It's not clear in the documentation if this was um, at admission or during the course of their hospitalization, but what they describe for all patients, so you know that 1,099 patients is that 58% got some form of IV antibiotic, 36% got osotelmavir, so you know Tamiflu for influenza, 41% were treated with oxygen, and 13% got IVIG. Um, now, one of the kind of key numbers, I think, from a health systems perspective is that length of stay was pretty long. The median length of stay was 12 days. And even for those with non-severe pneumonia, it was 11 days uh, for a median length of admission. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So a lot of uh, information. Now, you said um, 80% over the age of 50 was old, but you know, if mom and dad are listening to this, they will take strong offense to that. Um, but uh, yeah, fascinating um, baseline clinical characteristics. I think that's fair. I don't really consider someone who's 50 to like really 75 to be that old. So these are a relatively younger population of patients. That's right. I, I think if we had, you know, patients who are 50 years old, on our uh, on our service that would pretty much be um, pediatric by um, general internal medicine standards. Um, so what were the main limitations of this study? The key limitations is that it wasn't entirely clear in the documentation how they decided which patients to study. So as I mentioned up front, at the time of the uh, the paper, there were about 7,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 who were hospitalized. In fact, uh, I think the number was 7,700. <laughs> But they only studied these 1,099 patients, which is sort of 14%. Um, and it's not clear how they decided which patients were part of this study and which patients were not. Like, they don't say that it was sort of consecutive admissions to the hospital or uh, any kind of random sampling. Um, so it's just, it's unclear how these patients were selected to become part of the study. Yeah, that's a great point because, you know, maybe people who are healthier or more likely to be um, in the study. Maybe that's not the case. I, I'm not really sure. So yeah, I agree. That is a, a very important limitation. Um, so what's a, the take-home point here for, uh, for listeners? I think there are a few important take-home points. Uh, the first is that this paper gives us a nice sense for uh, the clinical syndrome that people are presenting with, um, and that is fever, cough, fatigue, as well as shortness of breath. Um, I think it's also important to recognize that of those admitted to the hospital, about 10% had severe disease. And then from a healthcare utilization perspective, lengths of stay are, are pretty high. So median length of stay, 12 days. Uh, you know, when you compare that to what we're more used to for more typical pneumonias, like, you know, community-acquired pneumonia, influenza, for example. Yeah, no, fair, uh, fair points all around. And uh, practice changing for you, I guess anything about COVID-19 is practice changing for all of us. But but how about you? I know. I think we, uh, we can really benefit by getting this uh, information from uh, these physicians, from these researchers in China. It gives us a good clinical picture. Um, of course, we don't really know what the optimal management strategy is for these people other than supportive care, um, but clinical trials are ongoing, and I think this just gives us more information so that we can be prepared. 
All right, sounds good. So uh, I'm up next, of course. Um, my paper is entitled um, Risk Factors Associated with Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome and Death in Patients with Coronavirus Disease 2019 Pneumonia in Wuhan, China, uh, published in JAMA Internal Medicine on March 13th, 2020. Okay, perfect. So what was the research question for this paper? So this one nicely dovetails from uh, your study that sort of laid a lot of the foundation for the clinical characteristics of patients with COVID-19. Um, this paper also describes um, patient characteristics, but more specifically tries to see what patient level factors might predict or are associated with um, acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS uh, or death. Now, I think you've already kind of hit on why this is important, but uh, what other things do you think can really be uh, beneficial from this study? I think whatever information we can have clinically um, to get a good sense of prognostication, being able to identify patients who uh, may do worse, any information we can get to allow us to make that decision is uh, very, very helpful. And I think, you know, you hit on a lot of the high points in terms of um, the background related to what we know about um, COVID-19 uh, thus far. And I think this paper provides a lot of great uh, granular um, clinical information. So how did they do the study? Similar to yours, this was a retrospective cohort study. Um, this was of 201 patients uh, with confirmed COVID-19 pneumonia uh, admitted at a hospital in Wuhan between uh, December 25th, uh, 2019, and January 26th, of course, 2020. Uh, and patients were followed up until February 13th, 2020. Everyone included was between the age of 21 and 83. Um, they had confirmed COVID-19 um, similar to um, the, the method that you had um, described, so confirmed um, using PCR. I'm not sure why they didn't also include uh, older adults above the age of 83. Um, the main outcome here, as mentioned, was um, development of uh, ARDS uh, and death among those with ARDS, and they used the um, World Health Organization definition to define um, ARDS. There was also a number of um, secondary outcomes, um, looking at the impact of steroids on these outcomes, and in terms of the statistical analysis, they performed a bivariate uh, Cox regression model um, to look at potential predictors associated with um, ARDS or with progression from ARDS. Um, so I guess when the time comes, uh, I can give a bit more details on that modeling approach. Okay, great. Uh, and so, you know, who were these patients? What did they look like? Yes. So um, in terms of the included patients, so um, as mentioned, there were 201 in total. Uh, median age was 51 uh, with an interquartile range of 43 to 60. 64% um, were men. Um 10% had uh, diabetes, 20% had hypertension, 4% uh, had cardiovascular disease, and 1% had chronic kidney disease. Um, similar to your study, a lot of granular data on lab results. So um, the typical lab result was a white count of six. Um, typically, the neutrophils were normal. There was a bit of lymphopenia um, in the platelet count 
was approximately 180, creatinine of 72, uh, normal CK, normal blood sugar, um, CRP was elevated at uh, 42, and then normal liver enzymes um, in normal albumin, normal D-dimer, and normal quote-unquote coag tests such as um, PT and APTT. Uh, 90% had fever, um, 80% had cough, uh, 40% specifically had a productive cough, and among 95% of the um, chest x-rays, they showed bilateral infiltrate. Um, And I should just note that one person incidentally also had another virus detected. So what was the finding? What sort of predicted for ARDS for worse outcomes? Yeah, great question. Um, So I will get to that, of course. I should also note that um, in terms of how these patients were treated, um, 80% got supplemental oxygen, and um, most often that was just through nasal cannula. Um, 30% uh, received a non-invasive mechanical ventilation, so what I'm presuming um, is BiPAP. Uh, I should also note that 30% got methyl prednisone, uh, 98% got antibiotics, 85% got antivirals, 53% got um, quote-unquote antioxidants, um, mainly um, glutathione and uh, N-acetylcysteine, and 35% got IVIG. Um, similar to your study, median length of stay was 13 days. Um, so, you know, drum roll, please. I like, get to the point here, Mike. Okay, so 42% of patients in this study developed ARDS, and of those, half um died as a result of uh, ARDS, or I guess I should say as a result of COVID, um, but not only did they get ARDS, but they died. Um, so the obvious question is, you know, what are the predictors here? So overall, people with ARDS were uh, more likely to present with shortness of breath, about 60% uh, of patients, and more likely to have um, comorbid chronic conditions. Um, Interestingly, they were less likely to get antivirals and more likely to get to steroids. Again, let's get to the point here. Okay, so what were the strongest risk factors um, for ARDS? Um, A CRP above 5 had a hazard ratio of 5. Age above 64 had a hazard ratio of 3. A ferritin above 300 had a hazard ratio of approximately 3. Um, diabetes, hazard ratio of 2. Um, globulin, hazard ratio of 2. And then a number of characteristics has a, had a hazard ratio of approximately 1.8. Uh, and those included high fever, hypertension, um, LDH, and um, uh, those, I think, were, were the key ones. Uh, and then the strongest risk factors for death, if you got ARDS, um, were age and uh, elevated ferritin. And maybe, can you just remind our listeners, you know, when we're talking about things like the hazard ratio, what is that telling us? What, what information is that providing? All a hazard ratio is, um, is, you know, one rate over another rate, all right? So let's say... Um, in, in one group of individuals, um, the rate of the outcome was 10 in 100, and in some comparator group, it was 5 in 100, 10 divided by 5 is 2, that's a hazard ratio of 2, okay? So you can think of, you know, double the rate for hazard ratio of 2, and when you have hazard ratios of, you know, 3 or higher, um, that's certainly uh, concerning for sure, and what I mean by concerning is Often, not always, but often, that means it's a pretty strong predictor um, for the outcome. What were some of the limitations with this data? 
Right. So, um, you know, this, of course, was a single center study. Um, it was observational in nature. I don't want to give too much spotlight to the fact that people who received steroids had a hazard ratio of 0.38 um, for developing um, uh, ARDS. So that would suggest as though prednisone uh, or steroids more generally um, might potentially reduce somebody's risk of ARDS. Um, however, with observational studies, there's a pesky type of bias called immortal time bias. And I, I think um, that that striking hazard ratio isn't because steroids work that well, but instead is just something that can happen when you're comparing um, people who got a drug to people who did not get a drug. Um, and, you know, similar question with my study, was it kind of clear how these patients were picked? Were they kind of consecutive admissions to the hospital or, or how did they decide who got into the study? Yeah, so um, it didn't explicitly say whether it was a random sample or every single person who presented. Um, so I guess I could add that to the list of um, of limitations. And I think one other um, thing to add to the list, and you know, this is like um, some epi nerd stuff coming. Uh, but they performed a bivariate model. What does that mean? Bivariate that means two variables in the model. Um, I think they appropriately did that because they didn't have a really big sample size, but it would be more accurate if we had a multivariable model that accounted for all of the other variables. And sometimes you just can't do that. Um, but that would have been really helpful because maybe some of those hazard ratios I told you, um, maybe they're actually a bit lower and maybe actually they're all related to one or two features rather than each individual feature. Okay. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so what's your take home point from this study? So, you know, I, I'm starting on the, the wards in a week. Um, based on this study, um, I think my antenna will certainly be up when I'm um, seeing patients who are presenting and they're over the age of 64. And also, I think I'll be ordering a, a CRP and ferritin um, on these patients as well, because it seemed like um, those variables help to identify high risk versus lower risk and, and specifically a CRP less than five that really seemed to show that the patient was unlikely to develop um, ARDS. So I think that's an important pearl uh, until we have more information. Okay, great. Well, John, I think that's it. We're just going to stick to two articles today, um, but we always have time for the good stuff. So uh, what is some positive, good, fuzzy, warm things that you're reading about. So um, I've got kind of two good stuff things, if that's all right. Well, time out, John. Now, good stuff. There's no <laughs> plural on this. Let's There's stick no to the plural. rules. But no, yes, go ahead. Okay. So uh, two quick ones. Uh, the first is uh, this is from Alberta Health Services. They've put together a self-assessment tool that people can use by going online. We'll have the link on the website uh, and it can help risk stratify individuals so that they can know based on their symptoms, based on their exposure history, based on their travel history, 
Do they need to be worried? Is this more likely to be the cold? Is this more likely to be COVID-19? And it also helps then dictate, should someone get swabbed or not? Um, as everyone knows, you know, for the most up-to-date information, please check your respective public health agencies. We'll have uh, some links on the on the site for those as well. Uh, now, the other good stuff thing, uh, I saw this on CNN, and it's an article about some of the NBA players who are putting donations together to help support the support staff who aren't able to work in these tough times. Yeah, I like that. That's that's definitely some good stuff. And yeah, I've used that Alberta assessment tool and it's fantastic. I hope we get something similar um, here in Ontario, but you know, hats off to the folks in Alberta who, who created that. So for my good stuff, um, I think the title gives it away. It's China sends medical supply experts to help Italy battle coronavirus. So, um, you know, Italy is in a very, very bad place right now. Um, to say they've been hit hard by COVID-19 is an absolute uh, understatement. China has sent, um, I think it's something like 30 tons of medical equipment to help. Um, this includes 2 million masks, 1,000 um, ventilators, uh, which is, you know, just it's a mind-boggling uh, number, um, as well as a hundred thousand test kits. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, really nice to see um, such a such a sort of generous uh, way to support uh, uh, Italy and, and everything they're going through. That's a pretty incredible story. Yeah, absolutely. All right, John. Well, um, thank you for taking the time to uh, to record. Um, uh, do you have upcoming work on the? On yeah, the I'll be starting the wards on Friday too. All right. Yeah, stay safe yeah. for sure. Uh, yeah, there's some stay great safe. donning and uh, doffing videos to remind ourselves, and um, I, I'll, I'll chat with you again soon. Okay. Talk to you soon. The rounds table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at rounds table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.